There actually is something called the nocebo effect, which is the opposite of the placebo effect. The placebo effect is like you take some inert substance and you feel better, even though there's nothing active in the substance, just because you're taking it and you think it's going to make you feel better. And so it does. The nocebo effect is there's no harmful substance or quality to a particular substance. But when you ingest it, you feel worse because you expect to feel worse. And so you do. Welcome to Let It Out with me, your host, Katie Dalebout. This week, back on the podcast, my dear friend and someone who mentors me and constantly inspires me through their work and their wisdom and their advice, Christy Harrison. She's back on the podcast again. We've lost count of how many times. Christy, if you're not familiar with her work, she's an anti-diet registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating counselor, and she hosts the podcast Food Psych, and she is the author of the books Anti-Diet and the forthcoming book Rethinking Wellness, which will be out soon. She's someone who helps people make peace with food and reclaim the time and energy that they lost to diet culture. We get into that here a bit, and we talk about intuitive eating and health at every size. She is currently pregnant. She's also cooking up a baby. So we talk about her complicated IVF experience. She's really vulnerable. She talks about productivity and seasons of overwhelm. She's in a season where it's really full and we get into how she's managing that through meditation. Meditation is a tool for sitting with discomfort, rooting in pain, compassion, and It was such a rich conversation that we're splitting it into two parts. So next week, you'll hear us talk about emotional eating. We'll talk about eating alone. I talk about how I'm eating standing up and shame with eating habits. We talk about her first season of Food Psych and how that was a big part of it. We talk about how the pandemic impacts eating disorders and body image, the anti-diet movement as a whole, body image with pregnancy and postpartum anorexia nostalgia and photo nostalgia. So all of that is coming up this week and next week here on the podcast with Christy Harrison. I'm so grateful that you're here. If you haven't listened to this podcast before, go back. I have been on Food Site, Christy's podcast. We started our shows around the same time and became good friends through that. I actually was a guest on her show back in 2013, and she was a guest on my show at the same time. I walked into her apartment in Brooklyn, and we recorded back-to-back episodes and stayed in touch ever since. And since then, we've both evolved so much. Food Psych has completely evolved from what it was then, and it's become something that even if I didn't know Christy, her work and trajectory with anti-diet and health at every size has been tremendously helpful to me and my history with disordered eating and a clinical eating disorder, which I've talked about on the show, but not for a while. And I've, I've definitely had many ups and downs with, and Christy's been along for the entire wild ride. And I'm so grateful 
to have her in my life and I'm so grateful that her work exists. So let's get to this episode as soon as possible. If you want to learn more about me and my work, we have some workshops coming up. Stick around at the end. I'll let you know about that. And I hope you tune in next week too, because I always say these episodes really come alive in act two. So you'll hear that next week. And this one's really great as well. So let's get into it with Christy and I'll speak to you soon. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you here for maybe the third or fourth time, I think. Uh, yeah, it's I've lost count. It's so much fun doing these. I'm so glad to be back. I'm so happy too. So since our last podcast, I have to congratulate you on so many things. You have a new course out with 10% Happier, which I want to get to and highly recommend your episode as a guest on the 10% Happier podcast. And especially recommend that to anyone new to intuitive eating, which we're going to talk about a little bit today. And you have a card deck that just came out, which is incredible. I have one in front of me and I'm so excited about. And then most of all, you're about to have a baby. (laughs) Yes. And I have a book manuscript due before the baby and the paperback for anti-diet also just is about to come out. Wow. So it's... It's been a wild year and really like the last few months, it's just everything's hitting at once. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's a lot. How are you feeling and taking care of yourself with so much happening in your life at one time? Yeah, that's a really good question. I feel like I'm doing a lot, but then I also just like I'm trying to really listen to my body and listen to my brain when... I feel burnt out at the end of a day and it's like, oh, it's not my usual time to end work. I would usually work for an hour or two more, but I've just hit a wall. I'm like really trying to listen to that and just let myself not keep going. And obviously with things that are like deadlines for other people, that's sometimes a little harder where it's like, you know, I'm on a video shoot. I just have to like power through or have a deadline for like getting edits back to someone. And so I have to just turn those around or whatever it is. But luckily, I'm able to make enough of my own deadlines and kind of sub deadlines as well. Because, you know, with a book, the way my editor does it, at least she doesn't want to see chapters along the way. She's just like, send me the whole thing on the due date so that I can like, see how it develops and like read the whole thing all together. So I create my own like sub deadlines of like, okay, I have to have this chapter finished by this time and this chapter finished by this time. But because it's my own deadline, there's some wiggle room. So I've just been like really trying as much as possible to take time off, like let myself have half days or take a nap in the middle of the day. I've been doing this thing with prenatal yoga that I like to call Shavasana naps, which is like at the end in Shavasana, just like turn off the video, like, cause I'm doing most of them pre-recorded yoga videos. So turn off the video when we go into Shavasana, turn on like the timer on my phone and just take a nap. So yeah, I've been trying to have like little moments of self-care like that just built in and really trying not to do too much on the weekends and trying not to expect perfection for myself either. I show up for things, do my best. And right now my voice is super scratchy. I'm tired. I'm like weirdly hot. Probably should take off my sweatshirt in a second, but I'm just trying to like let it be what it is and trust that like whatever 
you know, years of experience and skill that I have will carry me through even times when I'm like not feeling at my best physically or mentally. And I feel very lucky that it's been a fairly uncomplicated pregnancy. And I'm like really knocking on wood now as I say that, but I'm in the eighth month. Like, so it's, it's getting close to the end and it's been relatively easy so far in the sense of like no major complications, obviously still the normal pregnancy stuff, like the nausea in the first trimester. Now I'm super uncomfortable, just hard to sleep, hard to get, you know, find a position that I'm not having back pain in or whatever, had nerve pain and have to go to physical therapy for it and stuff. But all in all, it's been relatively easy compared to what I would have expected because as we've talked about off the air and as I've alluded to in my own work, but I haven't really shared anywhere before. I had like a very complicated and scary experience with IVF and ended up in the hospital for a couple of days after the egg retrieval procedure. And so after that, I was kind of like, you know, and they had told me like, oh, you'll go home the next day. You'll like go back to work the next day. You'll go home and feel fine. You can like eat whatever you want and like, you know, take it easy, but you'll be fine. And then it's like, no, I go to the ER actually that night and I end up hospitalized. So I kind of, it was terrifying. And like, you know, no, still to this day, nobody quite knows what went wrong. It's like I had internal bleeding from the procedure. And the people who did the procedure are like, well, you must have a bleeding disorder because what we do like wouldn't cause that. And the hematologist I've gone to is like, well, you seem to have this sort of low-grade bleeding disorder that's that wouldn't explain the level of bleeding that you had after this procedure, and they probably hit a blood vessel, and that's what actually happened. And, you know, so there's no real agreement on what the situation actually was. And it was months of, like, going through testing and, like, testing for increasingly bizarre and rare bleeding disorders, including one that was like so rare that I, there's literally not a place that tested for it in my state. <laughs> like we had to go elsewhere. To, it was, you know. So after all that, especially, and being someone with like multiple chronic illnesses and, you know, having had my eating disorder history, which is now very remote, but like which triggered a bunch of other stuff that I'm still dealing with chronically. I just sort of expected the pregnancy to be like really complicated and that I was going to have to like take a lot of time off or that just weird medical stuff was going to pop up. And thus far that hasn't happened. And I'm really, really grateful for that. I'm hoping that doesn't mean that I'm in for a complicated labor and delivery because I know that that's definitely possible, especially with this bleeding disorder that I seem to have, which is a, it's called drug-induced immune thrombocytopenia, which is like basically my body destroys its own platelets, but pretty much only in the presence of certain drugs, like certain medications. And a lot of the medications they give you in the hospital for birth are on that list of like things that destroy platelets. So, and I'm a high-risk pregnancy. There's no way I want to do like a home birth or try to do a drug-free birth or anything like that. So it's, I'm just sort of between a rock and a hard place, I think, with that stuff. So I'm expecting that to be challenging for sure. But I'm grateful that like, I've had this semi-reprieve in a sense of just like eight plus months of pregnancy being okay. You know, not, not that it's ever the greatest thing in the world. And I feel very uncomfortable. It's certainly taken 
physical tolls on me in ways that I didn't totally understand until I went through it. And I'm still relatively capable of doing the work I'm doing. And I'm so grateful for that. Yeah. Oh, well, first of all, I'm just so sorry that that happened to you. I remember it was really scary because I think for several reasons, but I think the two biggest pieces are that it was so unexpected, you know, and you were like, okay, well, you didn't, everyone goes into labor and delivery of a baby prepared somewhat, at least of knowing that this is going to be intense and you went into something of like, oh, I'll be back to work the next day and then had it be so different. And then on top of that, having it unknown, like having unknown causes. And then, you know, it's just really complicated. And I really hope that next time you're on the podcast, we're just like, yeah, and the delivery was great and it all worked out. And <laughs> and I really am just hoping for that too, because I'm really happy that your pregnancy has been good, you know? And I think that's like all we can focus on today, right? Mm-hmm. So, and I'm sorry that you're you're uncomfortable. I guess one more thing on, on this piece of of like catching up with where you are today, and, and thank you for sharing so vulnerably. I think in terms of being uncomfortable and overwhelmed, I think overwhelmment, <laughs> I'm not sure if that's even a word, but as a feeling is like one of my least favorite. Like I guess it's stress. I guess it's there's a little bit of anxiety like within that, but it's just like you kind of know the solution and it's just time and one thing at a time and calm yourself down and, you know, as much as you can and, and do those things. But I think whenever I'm feeling physical discomfort, you know, I, I obviously haven't been, or not obviously, but I have not been obvious to you, I guess, have not been pregnant. <laughs> and um, I have physical pain though. I have a lot of structural issues. That's kind of my, my thing. Like I, you know, stomach, like I can eat sort of anything and be fine, but my, you know, I had this weird butt injury a couple of years ago and, and I have, whenever that's acting up, like I kind of know what to do to not, if I overexercise, if I do certain things, like it, it activates it. And I've actually come to have some gratitude for it because after being so, so frustrated that it, exists, I feel like it forces me to pay attention to my body in ways that I'm pretty good at due to also a history of eating disorder ignoring. So with that discomfort and overwhelm, how does that impact your mental health and well-being and intuitive eating even? Yeah, it's such a good question. I mean, it comes and goes. You know, I think I have good days and bad days with that where some days I'm just like, I can't, I can't even anymore. (laughs) Just like get this baby out of me. I'm so done. Sometimes it's not really like entire days thus far. Although I think maybe in that, like the last month of pregnancy that might start to happen. But for now it's been sort of just like chunks of the day, like an afternoon or an evening. I'll just feel like really, you know, like I'm crawling out of my skin and then it'll pass. Like last night, I actually went to bed feeling so uncomfortable and just like tossing and turning and like whining and (laughs) couldn't get to sleep. And my husband was so like, what can I do? And I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) Like, There's nothing, you know? And eventually I fell asleep and then woke up today feeling like, wow, that pain is gone. I don't understand how that passed, you know, because it was so intense and terrible last night. So I think trusting that it's that like this too shall pass. I'm trying to keep that in mind. 
whenever I'm in those moments and trying to see it as well as like practice for labor because, you know, that's going to be a whole new level of pain and discomfort that I think I've never experienced. And so trying to like marshal all my skills at sitting with discomfort, at breathing through it, at being present. Meditation has been incredibly helpful. It's actually funny, like I got asked to do the 10% happier thing probably three and a half months ago, four months ago. So I signed up for like a free trial for research to see what, you know, what their courses were all about, how I would structure one if I did one. And I liked it so much that I just kept it. And which is not a plug. I'm not being paid to say that. Like I already got paid for the course. So I just really like the app and I started meditating with it every day. And I had had like a fairly regular meditation practice years and years ago that was like a real key, I think, to healing from my disordered eating and from a lot of like relational issues that came up as I recovered. And that was really huge. But then, you know, like anything else, it's like felt like it served its purpose. And then it, it sort of fell off for me. Like it wasn't something that I was regularly doing. And I would occasionally come back to it with different apps. I would get asked to advertise for an app on the podcast and be like, sure, let me check this out. And then meditate with it for a few weeks and then drop off. And with the first book, I was trying to meditate just to like clear my head before writing every day. And that didn't last the whole time either. And so it was really nice to discover this and to like have it as an anchor, have a practice to do every day in addition to like yoga or other sort of mindfulness practices that I've just integrated into my life, but to have a bit more of like a formal meditation practice to clear my head, start my day. And like, most importantly, I think get used to sitting with discomfort, get me back into this place of feeling rooted and resilient and like capable of handling sort of the vicissitudes of my mind and of what comes up in life because God knows that's going to be, you know, going forward. I think with the physical discomfort and the pain of labor and stuff is going to be really important and necessary. That's been a big thing too. And I think too, like having compassion for myself and having compassion for others who are in a similar situation, like as much as I've had chronic illness in my life and dealt with, you know, some limitations from those things, my chronic illness has thankfully, like, you know, multiple chronic illnesses have never severely impacted my like physical abilities. So I, I would always say like I was pretty able-bodied, you know, and now with the pregnancy, increasingly so, I'm just feeling like not that able-bodied and, and not really up to the things that I used to do or things that I would think like, oh, I'll just walk up there and go to the post office or something. It's like, oh, no, that is now off the table. It's making me have a lot more compassion for my own limitations and for other people who've struggled with these limitations. Not that I didn't have compassion before, but it's just more of an embodied understanding and empathy, I think, than ever before. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And I want to highlight and underline and relate to so many of the things that you just said. I'll start with meditation because as you know, you know, it's something that I also have been doing for many years at this point, but gone through periods of 
not doing it and coming back to it. And it happened to also be in a, a period that I'm really consistent with this one specific meditation that a friend of mine sent me. It's actually so funny that we're talking about this. She sent it to me a year ago today. Mm. And it's not every single day, but I've missed, I can t- count on one hand the ones I've missed where I haven't gotten it in for whatever reason, I was, whatever, just couldn't, but maybe five times. And so for a whole year, I've done this specific meditation and I, you know, I've done TM and other things too. And it's a really great practice for so many reasons. And that's not what we're going to focus on today. However, and I've done many episodes on, on this show. And obviously, you know, there's many, many apps, including 10% Happier, which we love. But I think in relation to pain and the concept of this too will pass and it comes back to presence and the connection that we have to other people through pain. That's my experience relating to this is the strange injury that started in in 2019 that I think is over exercise related is something that made my mom always had back problems still does. She had like three back surgeries and all these things. And I was always very afraid of it. And, and, and I think looked at it with not as much compassion as I could have when I was younger. Mm -hmm. And now I have a whole deeper understanding, not only for this person who is my family, but for anyone with chronic pain and it's also okay to be frustrated and upset of, of sometimes I'll, I'll be, I kind of know what to do to, to not make it act up, but I'm just using this as an example to relate to, because it's completely different from, you know, the being in pregnancy or, or someone who has much bigger issues than I do. This is so minuscule and tiny and, and honestly in a pretty good place right now. But at times when it's been really flared up, it was happening a lot when I was traveling and really far from home. And I, I was in Bali by myself and it, when it was at its worst. And, and that was a bit concerning because I was like so far from home and having this like really intense nerve pain. And actually, when I got to Australia, I went to... My friends took me to their osteopath and she sent me this video that I'm going to send you, Christy, and I'll, I'll put it in the show notes about pain and about like pain coming in your brain. And it was just really helpful. It made me feel whatever, like I could sit with it and then also listen to it. And I felt this understand, like being around people and having to communicate and essentially doing what you're saying of like participating in your normal life and your work as you would when you're not in pain. It's so distracting. And and I would think about that, like when I was out to dinner or, and my leg is like on fire and I don't want to make a big deal about it or, or talk about it, but like I'm having this intense sciatica. It just made me, you know, when I got through feeling upset in my own body, I was then so aware and compassionate of like people live with chronic pain and have to show up in a conversation and go about their daily life. And it just the challenge of that. And it, it developed an empathy in me that, yeah, I'm, I'm still unpacking. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's, I'm so sorry you've had to go through that. And I didn't realize that it was like at its worst when you were in Bali, but how scary to be so far from home and dealing with that. And just what you said right there about like having to show up in a conversation and not wanting to like make a big deal of it. I feel so strongly right now. A couple weeks ago, I had to go for an infusion. So I have like low iron right now too. And that can affect bleeding tendencies and stuff like that. But it's very 
normal and understandable for this point in pregnancy because the baby's just basically like sucking up all the iron I eat. So nothing is going to my iron stores. And so anyway, the hematologist wanted me to like get this infusion. And I had no idea (laughs) going into it how common it was to have reactions to infusions like this. So I go into the infusion center, my husband's with me and There's this really nice nurse there who like sets me up with the infusion and then she's just chit-chatting with us and she's like talking about her niece and showing us pictures and, you know, we're having this nice conversation. And all of a sudden, like the medication starts going into my veins and within a minute, I start feeling like lightheaded and dizzy and I can't breathe. And like my first instinct, because we're still having this conversation with this nice woman and I'm like oh God, like, don't, don't ruin the conversation by like having a problem or whatever. And then suddenly it just was like, nope, I, I can't, I'm blacking out. And then I finally was like, help my heart. I don't know what's happening. (laughs) You know, like interrupted, but it's, it's wild. The sort of conditioning that happens, right? Like among people who, you know, I think a lot of us socialized as women get this, but you know, just people who are conditioned to be like kind and polite and, you know, good citizens or whatever. And yeah. people pleasing, exactly. Like just trying to keep the peace and not say anything when we're in pain. And it's wild, you know, and, and when our bodies just kind of take over and it's like, nope, you can't, like, you can't pretend anymore, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. There's a beauty to that, I think. And, I had a, a similar experience. I think I have told this on the, on the podcast before, but I'll I'll tightly tell this. I think my it got so bad when I first arrived there because it is really activated when I sit and I can't get up and stretch. And so I had been on the longest flight of my life, you know, flying across the world. And so that I think getting there, it was why it was so activating. And then I was at dinner with some friends and there's a lot of floor sitting in Bali (laughs) at restaurants and which typically would love. I love to perch, you know, like it's cool with me. And we found this table outside and this particular place we were at had both inside and outside sitting with different like, or not inside outside, but floor or regular table options. And similar to your story with the infusion, my friends, we get sad at a table that's on the floor and I'm like, okay, I'm going to just make this work. And I very clearly was trying to not like look uncomfortable, but I I couldn't not like my, I kept like getting up and trying to stretch my psoas and you know, the whole thing. And I didn't know them that well, but I, is it similar to you until one second, my friend Natalie was like, Hey, Katie, do you want to move to the other table? Like, it's co- totally cool with us. Like, let's just move to the... You're like clearly uncomfortable. Like, no, 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 no. And I say no like three <laughs> or four times. And finally, we. she's like, we're moving. And we move. And she kind of pulled me aside later. And she was like, look, you speaking up for yourself and like saying what you want to the group actually serves the group. Like it makes everybody happier because you are happier and there's no like resentment building. And also turns out in sort of like a kismet sort of a way, the other table was better. The like view was better. Like all these things ended up being better (laughs) for the group by like, you have to believe and trust that like, if we all speak up for our own needs and communicate, it's actually better for everyone involved. And it's so 
opposite of what, like you said, our conditioning for a lot of us is, unfortunately. Yeah, that's such a that's such a great reframing of it. I love that she said that. Cause I feel like it really is opposite of and and opposite too of like what a lot of us experience in the world, maybe not, you know, not just the sort of conditioning of like this will ha- you know, like like be polite, don't rock the boat and that sort of thing. But like what we actually see when we do speak up for ourselves in our younger days, maybe in certain family dynamics or cultural dynamics or with peers and things like that. Cause I can definitely remember times in my past when like I did try to speak up for myself and it resulted in like a metaphorical smackdown basically. Yeah. Yeah. It's that, that too. Like, I think that's so ingrained in us and this is going to sound like a a podcasting transition, but I, (laughs) I do think it's related to, or it's not super unrelated to eating disorders, you know, like taking up less space. And I think that's in there. Like this, it takes a level of confidence and vulnerability and self-assuredness to speak up in situations. And there are so many times when I have not, because I haven't felt comfortable and I haven't felt secure enough that if the outcome doesn't go you know, that was the best case scenario, right? And that story with Natalie, and it sounds like you, and then I'm sure the nurse was then, you know, really helpful and um, didn't yeah. care about the conversation after that, <laughs> right. you know? So those were, those stories we told were like rather sweet, but there are so many instances where it's either not safe to speak up or you do, and then you're knocked down. And so of course it's the opposite is true too, which is just such a bummer. It really is. And yeah, I think you're right that like, it's no coincidence that, people who struggle with these sorts of things are also vulnerable to eating disorders and vulnerable to this notion of you should take up less space. Or in some cases, some of the clients I've worked with, it's like, here's a way, here's a strategy for taking up less space in this family dynamic or situation in life where that is very necessary to you. So it's like, of course, you would grab onto that. Of course, you would, that would become a coping mechanism and then be very hard to let go of once you're aware of it and trying to recover. Yeah. And I think on the other side of that, I'm curious what you think of this. This is something that is a thought I'm just having right now, but maybe the opposite is true as well, because I feel like a lot of my early part of my eating disorder was an out word reflection of my internal state, you know, of wanting to be, I was really sad and I was really wanting to be seen and noticed in some ways that I wasn't. And I think subconsciously that was in there as well of like, maybe this is a way to finally be seen or to finally be good enough or to finally be, you know, and there's a fine line there of like concern even of like, finally be, have attention, even if it's attention in this pretty scary way. Yeah. I think that's definitely true for some people too. And the culture conditions us in that way as well, right? It's like take up less space in order to be better, take up less space in order to be beautiful, in order to be seen, in order to be worthy of attention. So it's this sort of confusing dynamic of like, you have to erase yourself in order to be special in some way. Yeah, it's all so much of a bummer. And diet culture and anti-diet, your book really play into all of this. And I am going to 
plug our episode most recently, which we recorded, I think, in May of 2020. And it was soon after your book came out. And I think we did... I didn't re-listen to it, but I'm pretty sure we did a good job of talking a lot about the history of dieting that you get into an anti-diet, which I highly recommend. It, I often like have uh, moments where I'll just voice text Christy like very angry and just be like, I just wish everyone had this book in their brain. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, okay, me too. Uh, nothing we can do about that today. But anyway, that conversation I think is a really good picture of what is to come in the book. If, if you haven't read Anti-Diet, definitely get yourself a hard copy paperback or hard copy. <laughs> um, and we're not going to probably get into diet culture and, and the ways that, you know, what you were just mentioning, why that's why that happens as much. But I think we do more in that conversation. But what I want to talk about more today is intuitive eating. And with what we're talking about, intuitive eating is really the the opposite, right? So of course, some people might have listened to our previous episodes where we've addressed that and I've addressed it with other people who have been on the podcast over the last couple of years. But to be honest, I haven't in a long time. If people are newer to the podcast and me, it was a big trend in my work for many, many years. But we've been talking you know, more about creativity and connection and relationships. And of course, because it's part of my story and something I'm so passionate about, it comes up a lot. And I think a lot of people who listen to the podcast do also, because I've heard from you, have a similar history to mine and Christie's with disordered eating. And I think everybody in the world knows someone who is you know, has disordered eating or, you know, has dabbled in dieting. Everybody either is that or knows someone for sure. So there's episodes where we've we've addressed these things, but not in a minute. And so I would love if people who are not aware of food psych or haven't listened in a minute or haven't read your book. And just in case, and for all of us, I love hearing about this. And I think I intellectually understand it really well. Embodying it is something I'm working on still every single day. But I think even though I have a pretty good intellectual understanding of this, I think every time I hear you explain it, it's a good refresh to give all of us and give us some context for where I want to take the conversation. So could you briefly define intuitive eating and how you came to it? Yeah, absolutely. So I sort of have two definitions of intuitive eating. The first is like that it's the default mode. It's the way we're born knowing how to eat. It's trusting our instincts around hunger and fullness and satisfaction and pleasure, not following rules or restrictions about what we eat, moving for joy, respecting our bodies, not having a lot of diet culture baggage, you know, and that's like you see that in babies and toddlers, especially increasingly sadly there's a weight stigma on even babies in the womb i've come to find out oh like my god this, oh my god i was taking this labor and delivery class taught by a couple labor labor nurses labor and delivery nurses and um one of them used this most this horrible stigmatizing like dehumanizing term for higher weight babies that just broke my heart and made me realize like, God, you know, this weight shaming stuff starts in the womb. And like, oh my God, you know, if you're someone so much. 
Isn't that so heartbreaking? And like, and if you're a person who is pregnant and has been told that about your baby and you don't have a lot of other context to like push back on it, you know, imagine what that does to your feeding relationship with your baby. Imagine what that does. You know, I think of our mutual friend, Isabel Fox and Duke, who was like put on her first diet at like two or three or something before she can remember, you know, like there's just, you know, sadly, I think probably an increasing number of little babies and toddlers who are um, being interfered with that way and, and, you know, weight stigmatized in that way, which is just awful. Even when I say how big I was as a baby, because, you know, I don't know why I know that it was like mm-hmm. a larger baby that was delivered and I was three weeks late, which I don't think they like allow for now. And I say that and people make comments like, you know, and that you would think they would make around that. And even that feels <laughs> weird, you know? Yeah, totally. I mean, even like for me with thinking about, you know, how to get this baby out, I'm like, okay, well, if she's this many pounds now and like gaining this much per week, like, why do I know that first of all? And like, there's certainly some fear involved of like, how am I going to physically do this? But also there's so much trumped up fear from the medical industrial complex. It's like, don't let your baby get too big, you know, da, 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 as though any of us really has any control over that. And I've had like an intuitive eating pregnancy and no way pregnancy where I'm not getting weighed. And I've had all these discussions with my doctor about this. And so, you know, for me, it's like, there's no intervention that I can feasibly do and preserve my relationship with food and my recovery. So I'm not even like going to try to interfere with my baby's size. It's just going to be what it is. And part of me is still scared. Like, what if she's really big, you know? And uh, it's just, it, it's, it's there. Like diet culture is there ready to get us at every new twist and turn in our lives. Yeah. But anyway, getting back to intuitive eating. So, you know, it's, it's the default mode. It really is how we're born instinctually relating to food in our bodies. And if no one comes in and messes it up, we can perhaps, you know, live that way our whole lives. And I had the good fortune and the the privilege to be able to do that until I was 20. So, you know, it was thin enough. Nobody ever commented on my weight and made me feel like I had to lose weight. I mean, people commented on my weight, but it wasn't to say you're too big, you know. And I had food security, and so I wasn't, I didn't have that sort of interfering in my relationship with food either. So was able to eat what I wanted, you know, honor my hunger and fullness, feel good about what gave me pleasure, not have a lot of comments made other than like unfortunate comments from my, one of my family members about needing to snack too much or whatever. But I think that was just because it was like inconvenient for him. (laughs) Um, But like that notwithstanding, I definitely was a real intuitive eater and, and didn't have any sort of negative thoughts about my relationship with food. And then when I was 20, I gained a little bit of weight and boom, like all the diet culture that was, had accumulated throughout my life, you know, just the the baggage that I had uh, filed away in my brain from diet culture was right there to seduce me and pull me in. And I went off to the races with weight loss and dieting and, you know, tumbling into more and more disorder. And so the intuitive eating that I teach now, you know, the process and the practice of intuitive eating that 
was developed by Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch in 1995, two fellow dietitians and mentors and now friends of mine, is about helping people reconnect with that innate, peaceful, easy way of relating to food in their bodies. And so there's 10 principles of intuitive eating that are sort of meant to help undo diet culture, help people unhook from those disordered and shame-inducing, guilt-inducing beliefs about food in their bodies and get back to being able to listen to their body's cues and listen to their sense of satisfaction and have that drive their food choices and their relationship with food rather than all these diet rules. It's really cool that they developed this in 1995. Like I was five years old. It's been around, which is wonderful. But the thing that I find both inspiring and concerning is it's the world we live in that doesn't do that. (laughs) You know what I mean? Doesn't intuitively eat, which we'll get more into. And I think that timing is very similar to my timing of like, I think I, I went around, you know, until the, my teenage years and then had a very similar timing experience of when I got off of intuitive eating and have now had to reteach myself. And I know very, very few normal eaters in quotes, normal being Ellen Satter's definition of normal eating that I've read on this podcast many times and really taken as a definition of what intuitive eating looks like. And 1995 was a long time ago. And it's really cool that the work that you're doing and many of our friends and colleagues and people you've had on your podcast and some on mine are are doing around intuitive eating and popularizing it and explaining it because it needs a lot of explaining. And that's the part that's concerning to me is that so many people, many, many people, I think, think that they're intuitive eating, but they've been influenced by diet culture as we all have. And I think wellness culture has really hijacked the concept of intuitive eating, which is very, very concerning to me. So a big reason of why I wanted to have you back on the podcast, I wanted to have you on the podcast for many reasons, but a big reason why I'm choosing to spend our time breaking this down and sending people to your course and your work and their work and their book to actually understand what it is because it's an unconditional permission to eat. And that's a really important step. I'm not, I think that might be the first step and understanding that unconditional permission to eat all foods and knowing that all of them don't have any mortality attached to it. That I think is so incredibly important. And you said in the Dan Harris podcast recently, where you're talking about intuitive eating at length, and I highly recommend that conversation as well, but you said the forbidden fruit that tastes so sweet. So when we forbid things, that's when we crave them and want them more. And and you gave a couple of examples. So can you talk about those points? Is that the first step in the intuitive eating step? It's part of principle four, which is... um, (laughs) So not at all first. (laughs) Actually, I get confused myself because I have in my intuitive eating course, I start with self-compassion as the first, not principle, but the first module. And then we go on with the modules. So I sometimes skip ahead. So it's it's, uh, the first principle of intuitive eating is reject the diet mentality. And that's really like, you know, recognizing and then challenging and throwing out the diet culture rules that you've been conditioned to live by then is honor your hunger. That's the second principle. 
eating when you're hungry, starting to recognize those subtle signs of hunger, knowing what hunger feels like and accepting it and respecting it and honoring it with food. And then the third principle is make peace with food, which is that encompasses the unconditional permission to eat concept, which is, you know, that there's no such thing as a good or bad food, that food doesn't have the moral value that diet culture has attached to it. You know, obviously there's religious beliefs about food and that's sort of a separate thing. But when it comes to what diet culture has told us about food, that, you know, certain things are healthy or unhealthy or clean or unclean, right? The clean eating branch of wellness culture, which by implication means that quote unquote processed foods are like dirty and, you know, bad. All of that stuff needs to be thrown out in order to have a peaceful relationship with food. And people do often worry when they hear about that principle, like, wait, so you're really telling me I can eat whatever I want? What about this? What about that? What about processed foods? What about sugar? What about candy? You know, whatever. And it's like, yes, yes, all of that. Yes, you're allowed to eat that. And it's like, well, if I'm allowed to eat that, well, I'll just never stop eating that. Like, that'll be the only food I'll ever eat. And I'll eat myself into an early grave. You know, that was my line of thinking when I was in my disordered eating days because my disorder definitely tended toward the orthorexic as well. It was very early days of Michael Pollan and sustainability. It was before wellness culture sort of took off in the way it has now, but early like 2003, 2004 kind of thing, where I was very fixated on like eating local, organic, sustainable, as low on the food chain as possible, all of that stuff. And so it was really sort of revolutionary for me in my own healing to realize like, no, I don't have to fear sugar. I don't have to fear processed foods. I don't have to think that if I start eating those foods, that something terrible is going to happen to me. And what does happen oftentimes in those early days is that we do start to like, you know, because the forbidden fruit tastes the sweetest, right? When something's been off limits, we tend to gravitate towards it more at first. And we tend to want to prove to ourselves that we're really going to be allowed to have it again and again, because diets and diet culture condition us to say like, well, diet starts tomorrow, so better get it all in now. And we get this kind of last supper mentality with foods that are supposedly off limits where it's like, okay, well, I'm going to eat it all now, but you know, tomorrow it becomes forbidden. And so I think it's hard to break out of that when even when you tell yourself you have unconditional permission to eat whatever you want. It's like, do I really though? Or tomorrow are you going to bring down the hammer? <laughs> you know, is it going to be just kidding, that's forbidden now. And you, you know, you missed out. So I think in the beginning, people definitely need some time to reassure themselves and learn to trust that the foods they love and the foods that were off limits really will be available anytime. But once you get through that early stage, I sometimes call it the honeymoon phase with particular foods, something kind of remarkable happens, which is those foods lose their luster. Those foods stop being the forbidden fruit that tastes the sweetest. They still might taste sweet. You know, they're still they're still fruit, right? But they're not forbidden, like in this fruit metaphor, not literally fruit. <laughs> Hopefully no one has put fruit off limits, although I know some diets do oh, that I too, have. which is <laughs> extremely sad. Yeah. My orthorexia had. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it is it is unfortunately uh, a big part of a lot of people's oh, orthorexia, actually. So sad. But I know. But, you know, whatever that forbidden fruit is, right? It's like 
it's not that you'll never want it again. I think this is one of the wellness and diet culture sort of twisting of intuitive eating. One of the ways that that happens is to say, oh, yeah, well, you'll just once you have unconditional permission to eat, you'll never want processed foods again. You just won't crave sweets. And it's like, that's not true, actually. You'll probably still want those foods that were previously off limits, but you won't want them in this compulsive way in this sort of reflexive rebound way that you did when they were when you were deprived of them. So you might still have them as part of your life. You might still have them even fairly regularly, but it's not going to be in that same grasping sort of way. And it probably won't result in like binging on those foods. So yeah, I think unconditional permission to eat is something that's really hard for people who are especially like those who are steeped in wellness culture and orthorexia to really get their heads around. I think rejecting the diet mentality and honoring your hunger in some ways are a little easier for people to really engage with. And then sometimes they come up against this unconditional permission to eat and make peace with all foods principle. And it's like, whoa, okay, what about health? And, and it's hard to get past that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there are several ways that intuitive eating can be turned into a diet. And I think orthorexia lends itself to be one of them in terms of cutting out everything under the sun, right? There's a diet that will tell you to not eat fat, like the low fat craze of the 90s. And then it's like the, the high fat craze of whatever other diets that are around. And then there's the carb thing and the whatever. And one of many pieces of anti-diet, your book goes into how dieting and judging bodies started as as early as ancient times. And then, you know, with up you you take us up to present day and and go into the industrial revolution where sizing of clothing, standardized sizing comes in and and how that affects things. And then there's a real turning point most recently or pretty recently where after the low fat craze, it became the low carb craze. And then it became the, you know, all these things like very close together, where, as you say, it disillusioned people a little bit to be like, what? This is like, none of this is making sense and is maybe incorrect. And so therefore they're open to another way to see it, which kind of brings you into wellness, which could potentially be good, but it's not really wellness and that's a slippery slope and i think intuitive eating in a combination with all of those elements can very easily slip into a diet where it's like as our our friend that we've mentioned isabel fox and duke calls the hunger and fullness diet which i've really participated in by accident you know which her definition is so helpful because i'm like well i am intuitive eating well because i'm treating intuitive eating like i treated dieting and i was really good at that you know <laughs> so i think that is a big one. And then also not actually legalizing all the foods because of really ingrained wellness culture and orthorexia at different levels. Yeah. Let's take a break. And then when we come back, maybe you could go into some of these pitfalls and especially gentle nutrition is the last principle for a reason because it gets into diet culture too soon and takes you away from the the principles of intuitive eating. And so I'd love to get into that, but let's take a quick break and then we'll be back with Christy Harrison. 
I'm so excited that this week's episode is sponsored by Olive and June. So Olive and June makes nail polish that lasts for seven days. It doesn't chip. They have so many great colors. I'm wearing it right now. They have this Olive and June Manny system where you can achieve salon quality nails at a really affordable price. Olive and June's manicure system is the ultimate secret behind salon perfect nails from home all in one, no guessing, no messy nails, no salon price tag. It's incredible. I love how their Manny system comes with all the tools you'll need in one really nice box. It's really a game changer and my nails look professional even though I did them myself. Nobody knows. It's really challenging for me to have proper nails and usually when I do it, it looks like a five-year-old's done it, but for some reason, I really suggest the Olive and June Manny system. Six polishes, it breaks down to $2 a manicure. I used to spend like $40 for just one, right? It's a really great economical situation. I love the colors. I've been doing like one nail a different color and, and trying a bunch or one hand one color. And when I have gone to the nail salon before, they've charged extra for that. So that's really cool. And it's a really fun thing to do nails together. I've been having people over and, and doing my friend's nails. It's really, really nice. And they've never looked so good and I'm doing them myself. It's a great moment of self-care and I really, really love this product. The cool thing about it is there's so many colors and you don't have to choose just one. Getting beautiful salon perfect nails at home is now a dream come true with Olive and June. Your new nail life is here. Visit oliveandjune.com slash let it out and use the code let it out for 20% off your first Manny system. This is an exclusive offer you can only get here. That's O-L-I-B-E-A-N-D j-u-n-e dot com slash let it out code let it out for 20% off your first Manny system oliveandjune.com slash let it out code let it out Today's episode is brought to you by Manscaped, the leading men's hygiene brand. Manscaped just launched new products that the men in your life will actually use, including the new ultra premium body wash and the two-in-one shampoo and conditioner. It's time to give all of the men in your life the gift of beautiful skin, hair, and balls this season. Go to manscaped.com and use the code let it out for 20% off and free shipping. Inside the Performance Package 4.0, you'll find the Signature Lawnmower 4.0. This electric trimmer has proprietary advanced skin safe technology. Candy cane balls are no more. It's also waterproof, so it can be used in the shower. Tis the season to load up on Manscaped products so you can get all of the men in your life the best gift of all, the Manscaped Performance Package 4.0. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code LETITOUT at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code LETITOUT to get the man in your life a gift that you'll both enjoy, the gift of Manscaped. 
This week's episode is brought to you by Ritual. Ritual makes a multivitamin that I love to take. It is so easy and it's beautiful. I really love the packaging. It's clear. You can see right through it. It helps you to get more vitamin D and omega-3s. Ritual is committed to third-party testing and uses non-GMO project ingredients and always has clear communication. The packaging is clear, the supplement itself is clear, and it even has this minty flavor when it goes down, which I, you know what, I really enjoy. I have them right here, here's some natural sound. I take them myself, Ella takes them on our team. I actually enjoy taking them, and let me tell you, it's real hard for me to remember to take anything. Right now, Ritual is offering you, my listeners, 10% off your first three months. Visit ritual.com slash let it out and turn healthy habits into a ritual. That's 10% off at ritual.com slash let it out. So grateful to Ritual for supporting the podcast. That really scratched an itch for my broadcast journalism days of (laughs) wanting to do that and be that when I grew up. So that was, that was really fun, but we are back with Christy Harrison. And can you get back into where we were talking about the principles of intuitive eating and some of the, the pitfalls that come with taking the final principle, which is gentle nutrition too soon? Yeah, I think there's a few things that happen with that. I think one thing that I see a lot is people sort of using gentle nutrition to say, oh, you know, when I eat a certain type of food, like let's say when I eat gluten, it makes me feel weird. I, you know, get a headache or my digestion feels off. And so therefore I should avoid gluten, right? It's like using this, which, you know, gentle nutrition doesn't even really mean that you're like supposed to pay that kind of exquisite attention to how things make you feel. And I think there's a certain overemphasis on tuning into every symptom that happened that like comes from wellness culture and the way that diet culture has sort of taken on the guise of wellness that is really not helpful with intuitive eating. And I think actually because people will jump into that too soon, it can often backfire and sort of derail the process because Yes, like obviously there are people who have celiac disease or wheat allergy or something like that. Probably you'd be diagnosed and you would know ahead of time. But for things that are maybe a little less obvious and sort of more nebulous, like let's say lactose intolerance or something, there may be a time and a place to look at whether certain things don't sit well with you or whether you might need to take a lactase enzyme with dairy to help you feel better or whatever it might be. But if you jump into that too soon, before you've rejected the diet mentality, before you've made peace with food, before you've gotten rid of the diet rules that tell you reflexively gluten is just bad, for example, you're not going to be able to relate to your own like physical sensations in a way that is free from diet culture's conditioning, meaning that there actually is something called the nocebo effect, which is the opposite of the placebo effect. The placebo effect is like you take some inert substance and you feel better, even though there's nothing active in the substance, just because you're taking it and you think it's going to make you feel better. And so it does. The nocebo effect is there's no harmful substance or quality to a particular substance. But when you ingest it, you feel worse because you expect to feel worse. And so you do. 
this is actually a real problem in research on digestion and, you know, partic how particular foods might affect digestion. Um, it's come up a lot in the research around so-called non-celiac gluten sensitivity, which, as I unpack in my book, is actually kind of a lot of experts and even researchers who study so-called non-celiac gluten sensitivity say that they don't even think it's necessarily a real thing, that, that it might be due to something other than gluten. And one of those things is the nocebo effect. There's a, a really interesting study. I won't get into the details here, but I talked about it in my book where they randomized people into different groups, uh, one of which got gluten, one of which got a placebo, and then looked at the differences between the two groups and found that those who were expecting to get gluten, which was pretty much everyone across the board, ended up feeling worse no matter what they actually got. And there was no real statistical significance to those differences. So people who got the placebo still thought they were getting gluten and still felt bad and these were people with self-reported non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So you would think that if they were really sensitive to gluten, they would feel better on the placebo and worse on gluten, but that wasn't really the case. And sometimes people thought they were not getting the gluten and they actually were and they didn't, you know, report feeling bad. And so it's just really interesting to think about that from the perspective of like how gentle nutrition gets twisted in the minds of people in diet culture and those who are sort of early in their intuitive eating process. Because I think there's so many messages about this food will make you feel bad. This food's going to make you bloated. This food's going to harm your digestion. This food's going to just like harm you, period, right? These, this is poison, you know, some of the more extreme wellness culture rhetoric out there. And when you go into intuitive eating with those sorts of beliefs, I think it makes it really easy to sort of demonize particular foods, which is a hallmark of diet culture. That's one of the four main tenets of diet culture is demonizing some foods while elevating others. I think it, with in, true intuitive eating, you need to break that down. You need to get rid of that aspect of diet culture and see how it shows up for you and start to challenge that in your own mind. So I think when people jump into gentle nutrition too quickly, they twist it in this way where it's like, you know, I have to avoid things that make me feel bad. Let me pay exquisite attention to every symptom and see what makes me feel bad and then avoid those foods accordingly. And that can lead to, you know, really restrictive path. And I know from personal experience of thinking that I was sensitive to gluten myself in my orthorexic days that it was really hard to untangle what really is coming from the gluten, which for me turns out nothing. <laughs> There's no symptoms at all that I have in response to it. And what is coming from that mental sort of imposition that we're putting on it of, you know, this is going to make me feel bad. So that's one way that I really see gentle nutrition going awry. Another way is just a little more sort of garden variety diet culture where it's like, I've been told all my life that I was supposed to be low carb. And so if I'm trying to do gentle nutrition too quickly, I'm going to think that my intuitive eating has to be low carb in order to be proper or that I have to avoid certain foods that I've been told are bad for me or unhealthy. And I think, again, it just prevents people from breaking down those food rules and coming to a place where they can truly understand 
what's going to help me feel good? What's going to help me feel like what's going to give me pleasure and joy? What foods do I need to legalize in my life? Even if they maybe do make me feel a little sick because I need that pleasure and joy and because I've been deprived for so long, right? Moving through that and sort of coming to a place where you're making the decisions, you have the agency and you're not responding to diet culture's rules or rebelling against them, but you're actually living you know, based on your own inner compass when it comes to food. Yeah. Wow. Okay. This is really hitting me hard. I have a lot to underline and a couple follow-up questions for you. So what I was going to say in regards to your first point about taking these things that we've heard and, and are in our culture now so much, like gluten we'll use as an example, I think there's a real self-honesty that comes with letting go of dieting and the extreme of that, which we've both experienced with extreme dieting, which is disordered eating and clinical eating disorders. And I've had all of the above. And like I said, there's this truth that you have to tell to yourself of, am I doing this for aesthetic reasons? Am I doing this for how I'm actually feeling? Am I doing this because I think it's how I'm feeling? And honestly, I just want an excuse to keep doing it. Because one thing that I realized I became an expert in, which is a really sad truth of dieting or having an eating disorder, I guess, it's a lot of lies you have to keep up with yourself and with other people. And that's what's been most liberating to me to not have to do that. And honestly, that I, I was unpacking this a little bit yesterday. And that's, I think, why I started journaling was because I had to lie so much within my eating disorder to everyone, even when I was in treatment, to my therapist, to my dietitian. Like there was a little bit of, even when I was trying to change and aware that I had to, holding back the truth. It took me a long time to tell the truth to anybody. And I could at least tell it to myself in my journal. And that felt good because I think what we hold on to, we have to manage. So I think that self-honesty really comes into play here for even wanting to try this. You know what I mean? Like there are going to be people listening to this conversation right now. There are going to be many more people listening to your conversation with Dan Harris. And I, I say many more because there's just way more listeners to that podcast. But in that sample size, there's going to be so many people who listen to this conversation with you, Christy, unfortunately. And I hate that this is the truth, but it, it is the truth that are going to be like, cool, I'm so happy this person seems really nice, but not for me yet. I just want to be thin, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's a product of our culture. And, and there are people listening right now because I've been that person before and have had many ups and downs with being that person to the point where I've had to like, as your friend over the last 10 years, be like, oh, I'm just going to not... I'm going to like pretend this doesn't exist for a second because I'm so in it and had to come back to it, which is really embarrassing. And you were so gentle with me when that happened. But this stuff is really pervasive. And my whole spiel about self-honesty, that messes it up. Because then <laughs> even if you are being honest with yourself, you're like, yeah, but like I, my stomach and this and that, and it might be true because of the nocebo effect. And I hadn't, right. even though I've read that in, in your book and even though I like knew it existed and, and obviously the placebo effect is so powerful and, and the one that everyone knows about. So having that term has always been helpful to me to be like, actually, there's this other way. And I use that often in conversation when people 
bring up their gluten sensitivity or whatever it is, I will often bring up the nocebo effect and it never goes well. (laughs) And so I'm trying to not do that um, because it can just sound judgmental, but I, I think it really, I haven't put together how it can contradict what I said about self-honesty, which is really unfortunate because if someone doesn't know about the nocebo effect and, and just is like, well, I am being honest with myself. I think there would have been times in, in my life and, and you wrote a beautiful essay about what we're talking about with gluten for refinery, your experience with that for refinery 29 a couple of years ago. And yeah, I just, it's a, it's a bummer to me. It's a huge bummer. It's, and, and yeah, I think the nocebo effect is a delicate thing to talk about because I would never want anyone to think like she's just saying it's all in my head or that I'm making it up or something like that, which it's not, that's not true. Like the nocebo effect, I think is a powerful example of how strong the mind, mind body connection really is. And that's not to say it's all in our head far from it. It's like beliefs about particular foods or relationship to a particular food that's disordered in a certain way can actually create these physical effects, can create pain, like legitimately. But I think knowing that in some sense, you know, if you can, and again, I think you have to be in in the place to be able to see it this way, which I know for myself for many years was not either. But I think if you can sort of understand that, that like this is a testament to the strength of the mind-body connection and how like your beliefs about particular foods can actually cause pain that you know it can it can help it can be sort of empowering in a sense too of like if I can heal my relationship with these foods if I can try to like unpack and challenge these disorder beliefs maybe I can start to heal myself maybe I can start to reduce this this pain that feels unmanageable the other piece too is that when people are eating in a disordered way I talked about this in one of my podcast episodes on food psych I think it's episode 175 with Marcy Evans I don't know why I said I think I totally know because it's the one I refer to so often <laughs> I'm always referring people well, it's to very that. impressive that you know the numbers so you didn't want to sound too cool you really like build yourself <laughs> right. there <laughs> Right. I know. And it's only a select few that I know the numbers of offhand because I'm like always just, you know, tossing off those references. But <laughs> but in that episode, we talked about how disordered eating can actually create intolerances or sensitivities to particular foods because it disrupts the gut microbiome and it can sensitize people really to certain foods that they wouldn't otherwise be sensitive to and that once they recover oftentimes are no longer sensitive to and never were before the disordered eating began. But there's this, you know, there can be some very real effects when people are restricting, restricting and binging, using compensatory behaviors, all of that stuff. So I think that's really interesting too, to think about like, you know, that again, it's not all in your head that you might actually be having some true sensitivities to particular foods, but that the solution to that is not to cut out those foods. And then of course, go on this, you know, oftentimes what happens when you start cutting out foods is you you don't feel entirely better. And so you end up cutting more and more and more out. And suddenly you're with this very limited restricted diet that is extremely disordered and harmful. So the solution is not to go cutting out those foods, but to start to try to make peace with food and again, you know, be eating enough, really prioritizing eating enough and healing from the disordered behaviors so that those sensitivities can 
run their course and your gut can heal. And there is, of course, a small percentage of people who even after like significant eating disorder healing and recovery and being in a really good place in their relationship with food do still have digestive disorders, digestive issues that maybe were triggered or exacerbated by the disordered eating, but don't entirely go away once they recover. And so in those cases, I think there's other GI sort of solutions that can be talked about, like medication. There's actually evidence that gut-directed hypnotherapy and yoga are both equally effective to one of the most prescribed diets for irritable bowel syndrome. So that's really interesting, I think, because for people who are who have a history of or who are recovering from disordered eating currently, I really don't recommend elimination diets because it can just exacerbate the disordered eating. But there are actually other solutions or other practices that can be equally effective to that diet that have nothing to do with restricting your food. Wow, this is incredible. It's interesting when you were talking about your intuitive eating, finding it personally, and you mentioned how it was the early days of like Michael Pollan coming up and farm to table and, and all of that. And we are a few years apart in age. And so as you were saying that, I was I was kind of reflecting on on my situation, which similar timeline of you where I, you know, it was about 20 until I had any mild dieting aware of, you know, being part of diet culture. But when I was 20, very similar to you, I went to Europe and had kind of similar experience. I had gained some weight and then came back and had oppositely lost weight and I wasn't feeling good. I had like a parasite and I from there essentially started a two things happened i think at the same time one is body image related of the compliments and the dopamine i got from those compliments of people commenting on my jarring change in my body mm-hmm. i was then addicted to and wanted to keep going and then similarly at the same time i was feeling physically off from something that i didn't really know and to figure that out got into wellness culture, which I think the the difference in our age shows that where wellness culture was at that time was this was 10 years ago now. So was nothing what it is now, but even had been more than it was for you. And so I think we've shared a lot with each other about the overlap and the Venn diagram of our specific eating disorder situations. But I think the reason why mine got so much more orthorexic was because of where our culture was and where wellness culture was at that time. And I think this nocebo situation really impacted me. And even when I did have the self-honesty, it it was hard to get to that. I did have impacts of this that that were probably related to that. And, And it's just really challenging to uncouple and and I was really holding on for dear life to the control of it the it was a really cutting things out and doing essentially a version of an elimination diet where I was cutting out so many different things at such a rapid pace that barely anything was on that list at all at a certain point and it completely devoid of pleasure or nourishment or connection or any of those things but 
at the rate, the, the very quick rate that I did that, I can realize now that it's a really slippery slope. And, and I, was, I was hurting myself a lot during that time, which is, which is really sad. And coming, coming back from that and adding in more things. And I still, you know, coming up to today where totally different place from back then, but I, I have talked about this and, and spoken about my, it was a real rebellion for me, right? It was a way for me to, to lie and, and, and use these food allergies, quote unquote, as a way for me to diet as a way for me to go out to dinner with people or really at that time be around my family and not participate. And, and it felt so uncool to be like, Oh, I'm on a diet and not even uncool, but I just know that wasn't going to fly. You know, they'd be like, okay, yeah, me too. Like have another, you know, like they would push it. And it was a way for me to have autonomy and for me to have some independence and to have, you know, which is, (laughs) this gets into a whole nother thing. And this is like where the mental health part of this comes in. But my question for you with that, you know, and I've, I've unpacked that with a lot of therapy, a lot of listening to food psych, a lot of, you know, connecting and reading (laughs) and uh, over, you know, 10 years of of seeing this and, and letting go of those things. But because I've talked about this on the internet, on your podcast, which brought a lot of people to know my story around this on my podcast. And, you know, I've written things about it as well. I have a lot of people who share, as you do, our background with dieting and disordered eating. And a question I have for you that I've gotten recently and very frequently around disordered eating is, is it okay to avoid some foods? Is it, am I doing intuitive eating correctly? And not only in the sense of not the hunger fullness diet way, but like I've had so many people say to me, and I've said this at so many points too. Yeah. But like, I just don't like that or I don't eat that or I don't, is it okay to, and I don't even want to use the word restrictive because I think what I'm trying to describe isn't really restrictive. It's just a self knowing. And Mm -hmm. can you just talk about, is my question making sense? Totally. And I think it's so complicated, right? Because it's, it, comes down to intention and mm. and it's it's hard to be honest with ourselves about our intentions sometimes so especially when we're still in it with disordered eating in some ways so i think it's definitely possible to just not like certain foods or to genuinely not have certain foods sit well with you and so to kind of avoid them from this reflexive like ugh that just doesn't sound good to me cuz i i know it's going to not make me feel good which is very different, even though it might look the same on the outside or kind of sound the same in description to the like fake version or diety version of intuitive eating that I was just describing where it's like, oh, you know, I can't have gluten because it, it just makes me feel so bad where it's where that's coming from a diet culture belief and not from like a true self-knowing and a, a trial and error kind of situation, which I think is maybe one of the keys to like getting to that place where it is genuine is allowing yourself to have that trial and error, right? Allowing yourself to have, and this is not for anyone who, you know, if you have like a diagnosed food allergy from childhood where it's pretty obvious you have an anaphylactic reaction or something, you have to carry an EpiPen, like that's a very different story. Even then, I think it's worth mentally making all foods be 
on limits, you know, not not thinking of the foods you're allergic to as quote unquote bad and feeling like you have a sense of agency and choice. And so deciding I'm going to avoid this food for self-care, not because I've been told to, but because I know what's going to happen if I eat it, you know, and that's a very different that looks very different and feels very different than diet culture reasons for avoiding foods. I think to to get to that place of barring those really severe food allergies, like to get to that place of self-knowing and sort of assuredness that maybe something just doesn't really work for you. I think a lot of trial and error and like trying it and seeing what happens and being committed to going back again if you want that food, right? Like even if you're starting to think, okay, I'm sort of sensing a pattern here that when I eat X, I tend to get heartburn or when I eat Y, I tend to feel like just not good or something. But I think one of the the pitfalls of intuitive eating sometimes that I see people fall into is that they they sort of seize on that too early and they're like, okay, so if I don't feel good when I eat this, then I'm not going to eat this. And then it's still a fight. Then it's still, you know, coming from a place of like self-control versus a place of self-care. And I'm always saying like intuitive eating is about self-care, not self-control or a peaceful relationship with food is about self-care, not self-control. So I think really, you know, trying it and really getting to this place where, you can trust that you're making the decision based on self-care, I think comes with a lot of like, again and again, just trying it. You know, you want the food, you try the food, and then up, you have maybe a a consequence or a, a certain reaction or something. So like, okay, well, let's file that away. Next time it comes up, oh, but I really want this, but I think it's going to make me feel bad. Okay, what what happens if you try it anyway? Is it going to happen again? And then, okay, that's information to file away. Next time, you know, same thing, right? And and so instead of fighting with yourself, instead of muscling yourself into avoiding this food and then setting yourself up for this restrict binge or diet rebound kind of cycle with the food, you're actually allowing your body and your brain to sort of really internalize and embody the response to that particular food so that when, you know, you've done that trial and error enough and it really feels like, yeah, you know what? I just seem to get heartburn every time I eat that. And so it doesn't sound good to me. Like, I'm just not going to have it. That can actually come from a really embodied place and a place of being aligned in your in your mind and body rather than having to fight yourself. And I gave an example on the 10% Happier podcast about my heartburn during pregnancy. And, you know, I've had acid reflux for years. It really was triggered by my disordered eating, but I've had the diagnosis ever since. And it's kind of flared up in different contexts with stress, with changes in routine, and now very much with pregnancy with a baby, like pushing, you know, the uterus is like literally crowding out the stomach and pushing it up into my chest. And so it's, you know, a recipe for acid reflux for most people, actually, by the by the third trimester, most pregnant people have um, acid reflux. But I was one of the lucky ones that had it starting in the second because I had had that pre-existing condition already. And so, you know, throughout the pregnancy, I've really been trying to eat in a very non-restricted way as much as possible and just allowing myself to have the foods that bring me pleasure. And of course, that changes with nausea or, you know, appetite changes in pregnancy and stuff like that. So it's been an interesting intuitive eating process from that regard. But with the heartburn piece, I initially was like, okay, I'm not going to restrict myself. I'm going to keep eating the foods I want to eat. 
and I'm gonna, you know, my doctor okayed me to take Pepsid. And I was like, okay, I'm just, you know, this is how I'll deal with it. And then at a certain point in the third trimester, I just became like, oh, okay, even that is not really helping. And I'm sort of like coming up against this feeling of a lot of these foods that I'm eating just aren't sitting well and now are genuinely not sounding good to me. Like I'm kind of feeling like I don't want that or if it's suggested to me or, you know, sometimes my husband, well, most of the time will make me lunch or dinner or whatever. He's like the primary cook in the family. And, you know, if he brings something to me and I'm like, oh, like my reflect, you know, sort of reflexive impulse to something I would have otherwise loved is like, oh, I don't want to eat that. That's really telling, right? That's maybe something to listen to. And so from that place of that trial and error of that sense of like, fuck it, I can eat whatever I want. I'm going to do it. And then having those consequences again and again, it really sort of created this embodied sense of, okay, for now, like that just doesn't sound appetizing and I'm going to have to honor that. And that's not to say I'll avoid that food for the rest of my life. Obviously, pregnancy is sort of a time-limited thing. So I'm like looking forward to getting back to eating some of the things that I love um, afterwards. But I think that's an example of a time when you might, quote-unquote, avoid a particular food that's not coming from a diet culture place, but that's coming from a very like acute and sort of honest understanding of your own body. But I think to get there, you know, like if I had gotten pregnant 10 years before, which maybe I wouldn't have had the the fertility challenges I did, but I would have, I would probably have still been in it with like the vestiges of diet culture that I was and disordered eating that I was dealing with at the time. My relationship with eating during pregnancy maybe could have really gone off the rails. I don't know. Like I'm really grateful and glad that I've had this sort of time to heal and the intuitive relationship with food really re-solidified in that time before I got pregnant, before I sort of went through this new challenge with food. Yeah, me too. And and you give this example on the show where there was a special birthday or a special cake at your baby shower and your husband's aunt had gotten it and you wanted to try it, even though you knew it would maybe give you heartburn and you had some and it was fine. And you had the mm-hmm. heartburn and you chose to make that that choice. And I think this is something that I really want to bring up. Sure, there's pleasure. And I think that one's almost easy, at least for my brain to like understand like, okay, there are foods I really genuinely love and I'm like psyched to eat them. And even in my di- most disordered phase, like would have probably eaten them because I know I love them or not in my most disordered for in my case, <laughs> but in my disordered-er than <laughs> I've been there are times when I would have eaten it and still been pretty in my eating disorder. I would have probably beaten myself up after, but I would have known that it was like the juice was worth a squeeze on that pleasure wise. But there are other things that I'm just kind of like, I can take it or leave it. Like I don't really care that much about and care that much for, but I just don't eat because they don't give me that much pleasure. I don't prefer them as much as other foods. And what I would have felt in that time is like, I don't want to waste, like, I don't want to, why eat this when I don't even like it that much, you know? And putting this, what that does is it puts a pressure on every food, on every meal to, you know, hit it out of the park taste sensation wise. And one part of intuitive eating that is really important and something that I am pretty proud of myself actually, that is one that I I was able to bring in. And I think we had similar experiences of using other people to help us with this one, which is flexibility. 
which is what you did essentially at the at the baby shower of like, OK, it's going to I want to do this and it's going it, to it affects other people. So I'm just going to be flexible and do this right and deal with mm-hmm. the consequences on my own. And that level of flexibility helps you to not put so much pressure on meals and it helps you to interact in the world and interact with each other and people because food is not just pleasure. It's not just nourishment. It's also connection and it's also community. And I had someone on the podcast recently, I haven't told you this, Christy, but she was talking about how she was really restrictive with with food and had just come up with her, just been diagnosed with celiac and was spending a lot of time with her mom and before her mom passed. And there were a lot of these recipes and she was just really in it with the food stuff then. And she has a lot of regret about that and, and how she missed time with this person. And the point I was trying to make about Christy and I's connection over this is that we both had experiences of dating someone who helped us with this part of flexibility of like, all right, well, I need to be cool around this person. And so I'm going to just eat the thing. And I think the more I've done that and the more normal eaters I've been around or intuitive eaters or people who are just not as steeped in diet culture as me, the, the easier the flexibility piece becomes. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you come back next week for part two, where we get into emotional eating and rebranding it. We talk about eating alone. I talk about my habit of eating standing up with a refrigerator door open, shame and eating habits like that one. We talk about the first season of Food Psych, which was really centered around that. We talk about how the pandemic impacts eating disorders and body image. We talk about the anti-diet movement in relation to the pandemic. We We talk about well-being and wellness, body image, pregnancy and postpartum, anorexia, nostalgia, photo nostalgia. It's, you know, it's where things really come alive. But I hope you come back. And in the meantime, if you want more of Christy, she plugs all of her stuff at the end of next episode. So I will plug it all now. Listen to Food Psych. She has so many episodes there. Read her book, of course. And if you want to learn more about intuitive eating, if this sounds interesting to you, There are a couple places where you can learn more. Christy has a great, really comprehensive course on her site, so you can go straight there, or you can go to the 10% Happier site and A, listen to her episode on the Dan Harris podcast, because I think you would really like it if you liked this and you don't want to wait till next week for part two, get into that. That will give you even more context and it'll teach you a little bit about her latest intuitive eating course. They call it a challenge, but I think that would be a really great place to start with intuitive eating. So give that a go. She also has a new card deck out, which is incredible. I have it as well. And you know what? Just follow her on Instagram and and check out everything she does. She's such an important person in my life and just in the space of healing our relationship to food and our bodies. She's incredible. I love her so much. I'm so grateful for her. And I will see you back here next week with more with Christy. And if you want to learn more about me, I send out a newsletter 
almost every week. It's called the Let It Out Letter. So the link to sign up for that will be in the show notes and the show notes will be sent right to you every week if you are signed up for that newsletter list. I also co-host a project with Serena Wolf, a friend of mine called Spiraling. The project is called Spiraling. It's another, by project, I mean podcast. It's a co-hosted podcast with Serena Wolf about anxiety where we share what we're spiraling about for the week. We talk about different topics related to mental health, including therapy. And it's funny. It's a humorous show. At the end, we have a segment called High, Higher, Highest, where we share what we're grateful for for the week. I love it. And the very last episode will be coming out next week. And the second to last episode, a Q&A episode just came out this week. If you're listening to this, the day it came out. And we have a couple courses. I have some online courses. I call them the Let It Out Kits. They're journaling courses. So if you want to check them out, the link is in the show notes or just go to letitoutkits.com. And right now we have two holiday courses. So we have one called Comfort and Journaling, which is all about the holiday season and how to manage having a better experience of the holidays between spending time with family, being around people that you're not always around and foods you're not always around and times being different and traveling and just being out of your normal routines and how to manage that and the heaviness of this season or maybe you're being alone and it's just a way to connect with yourself during the busyness of the holidays and we also have a journaling workshop for the new year it's a remix for resolution setting and it's cool. I've been doing this workshop everywhere from retreat centers to yoga studios to stores. I did it when I lived in New York and when I lived in Michigan and now it's online. So you can take that workshop. They're both self-study workshops and they're available now. So link is in the show notes to sign up for those. Thank you so much for being here, for listening all the way to the end. If you want to keep in touch with me, I'm at Katie Dalebow on Instagram and Let It Out has an Instagram. Please follow us, send me a message. Let me know where you're listening. Tag us. That would be really great. And I can repost it and we can all meet each other. I think that'd be really, really cool. So it's Let It Out with three T's on Instagram and I will talk to you there and here next week.